what first lady still haunts the White House? Ooh, and what state parachuted beavers deep into its remote interior? <laughs> Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity with fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia. This is our 201st show. But who's counting? Nobody. We better <laughs> stop right now or nobody will listen. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's get going here. All right. Well, Marsha, I didn't know that there was a first lady who haunted the White House. Yes, yes. I knew Abraham Lincoln supposedly oh, yeah, haunted the halls. He's got a fair amount of ghosts there and Mary saw her kids there and you know there's lots of woo woo going there and this question goes out to Bob and John our ghost loving buddies okay who is the first lady who still haunts the White House jeez all right is this somebody from the 19th century shall uh-huh. I say could it be Dolly Madison nah okay <laughs> could it be hmm who would that be is it somebody, their husband was considered one of the greatest presidents? Well known? Uh, he was very well known, yeah. I don't know if you, I think he was one of the top presidents. It's not Mary Lincoln, is it? No, no, no. Okay, okay. No, no, that would be scary. <laughs> it's Abigail Adams? Yes. Really? Good for you. Remember, we had a thing, uh, she haunts the Rose Garden. Remember, the guys wouldn't uh, go out and do the landscaping because there was always a presence around there. And oh, they no, thought I it forgot was, about that. Yeah, that was a while back. But this is the uh, only first lady who haunts, uh, I guess there are five ghosts known, but John Adams was the first president to live in the White House yes. after its completion at the turn of the 19th century, mm-hmm. making his wife Abigail the first first lady to reside there. Yes. So she was the very first. According to some, she still does because the newly completed East Room was the warmest and the driest in the building when the Adams family lived there. <laughs> and she used to hang her wash there. Remember I heard we, about that. Yeah, yeah, hanging the laundry yeah, up, right? It was in that uh, documentary, too. Remember, she was in there doing her wash. Many have reported seeing her in or near the East Room in the two centuries since then. Wow. Often with her arms outstretched as though she's still carrying laundry. <laughs> oh my goodness, I wonder why she haunts the White House. Especially with laundry. Not the most menacing activity perhaps, but surely quite a shock when you're in the middle of a walk and talk. <laughs> I guess so. I thought that was funny. Abigail Adams with her arms stretched out. Like she was carrying laundry and she was the first first lady. So. That lived in the White House. Yeah, that that's, has some gravitas. True. Yeah, that was a dark, uh, dank kind of place when they first moved in. It was yeah, not it very was, nice. It was not. Yeah, it was kind of a hellhole, yeah. In that one, <laughs> uh, John Adams, it uh, uh-huh. wasn't a documentary, but John Adams, uh, Paul. Paul Giamatti. Yeah, played it. Yeah, they played that like, oh, they had the fire going there and you could barely, you know, it was so yeah. cold and yeah. everything. Yeah, and it was not palatial. <laughs> All right, Marsha, guess what? What? What state? <laughs> parachuted beavers from one part of its state to another when they became nuisances. Well, that tickles me to no end. Okay. <laughs> beavers, huh? I'll it's, say, a, it's a state you've been to. I was going to say, is it Minnesota? No, it's farther out west. Farther west. Is it Montana? No. Is it uh, Washington? No, but it's nearby both. 
Idaho? It's Idaho. Okay. It happened in 1948. Residential areas were complaining about nuisance beavers. So the <laughs> state <laughs> yes, nuisance beavers. So the state decided they needed to move them to vacant lands miles away, but the unoccupied areas had no roads, and taking beavers there by trucks wasn't wasn't going to be uh, possible. So do you want to know what happened here? Uh, we can thank a guy named Elmo Hedder. Okay. He's a real guy. Uh-huh. He worked for Idaho's Fish and Game Agency. And the problem was when people began building post-war homes in McCall and Payette Lake areas, Elmo knew there'd be trouble because beavers had lived there for centuries. And sure enough, they were soon chewing up the new scenery. They were eating <laughs> fences and downing trees and Bad damming beavers. streams and flooding yards. And <laughs> people were complaining. Beavers, yeah. <laughs> so he proposed that the state relocate these beavers to the remote Chamberlain Basin. The trouble was Chamberlain Basin was so remote, there were no roads. In fact, to this day, it's called the Wilderness of No Return, something like that. Isn't that amazing? Where have I heard that? That's not where our daughter's thinking yes, about. Yes, it is. Go- oh, for God's sakes. <laughs> anyway, delivering beavers <laughs> by truck was out, and beavers spooked mules and horses, so they couldn't deliver them that way. But it was 1948, and Elmo knew there was a surplus of something after World War II. Guess what? Beavers. No, parachutes. Oh, <laughs> There were beavers, but parachutes, too many parachutes. Why not attach the parachutes to boxes and parachute the beavers into the wilderness? He even did a cost analysis, showed it would only cost $8 to do this. $8? $8 per beaver to do this. Okay, right? (laughs) Yeah. And that was cheaper than driving hundreds of miles by truck and releasing beavers. Wow. And then he came up with a specially designed wooden container that would open up automatically when it landed. That was my next question. Yeah. Going to get out. And so he tested that over and over again with a male beaver he called Geronimo. (laughs) Well, Geronimo was freed by parachute so many times when he saw handlers approaching him, he'd voluntarily crawl back into his box like, okay, here we go again. So what did Geronimo get out of all this? Did they free him? Yes, they did eventually free him. Thank God. (laughs) He became the first Idaho beaver set free in the wilderness with three loving young female beavers. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Geronimo was getting a little. Okay. And once they hit the ground and Geronimo realized, okay, my parachuting days are over, they started making a little colony. Oh, be darned. And more beavers followed, 76 in all. And most of them dropped in little groups of three. Um, he repopulated. Three females and one male. They didn't have to show him how to do that. That's right. They didn't. <laughs> okay. And now guess what? What? The result is a fire-resistant wetland. Huh? NASA's satellite imagery of the Bow Creek watershed where they dropped all these beavers showed the beavers erected dams that formed ponds, flooded meadows, and protected the area from forest fires. And back in 2018, when the Sharps fire burned, their vegetation was more lush than other waterways, and it left unsinged the areas where the beavers lived, totally unsinged. So for the environment and the parachuting beavers, there was a happy ending. Well, that's... Very joyful, Bob. <laughs> except except for one beaver who realized that he was in a box and tried to get out of it too soon and oh, jumped to his oh, demise. Oh, anyway, I, that's the story of Elmo and Geronimo okay. and the beavers of Idaho. I thought it was fascinating. It's certainly different, that's for sure. Okay. <laughs> All right, Bob. 
Remember last week when I was giving you presidential quotes and you gave me the presidents? I just have a few more. Okay. We'll see how you do. Dust off that little character voice world of yours. All right. (laughs) These are pretty much a cakewalk. Okay. I am not a crook. Oh, that was Richard Nixon. Let's hear it. I am not a crook. (laughs) No, never. Okay. Our long national nightmare is over. That was uh, Gerald Ford. Can you do Gerald Ford? Our long national nightmare. I can't do that. I could fall down when I walk, though. Remember? Oh, oh yeah, but he didn't really. He was do such that. a coordinated guy. He'd he been was, a football he player. He was a and huge athlete, one of the yeah. most fit athletic men in office. Okay, here you go. Government mm-hmm. is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Well, Ronald Reagan <laughs> has to be him. Yes, that's I'm right. I'm just giving you this gift, aren't I? You are giving me a gift. Oh, here's one for you. A thousand points of light. That was that uh, George Bush. Yes. Yeah, thousand points of light. <laughs> no, la- no broccoli, please. <laughs> just light. No broccoli. Yes, please. And last one. There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what is right with America. Um, gee, that's a good one. That's a good quote, actually. It is. What is that FDR? No. It's a hopeful thing, though. Yes, it is. Very. And this is a voice you have in your quiver. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Is it Bill Clinton or somebody? It is. <laughs> okay. There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what is right with America. Bill Clinton. He probably said it like this. There is nothing wrong with America that can't be cured by what's right with America. Don't you imagine? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Marcia. Let's go back in history. Why did French explorer Robert Chevalier LaSalle's men mutiny and kill him? LaSalle? LaSalle. LaSalle. Is that the LaSalle we know in Wisconsin? Yeah, LaSalle. Everything's named after him. There's all kinds of LaSalle's. Yeah. Who killed him? His men did. Oh, that's not fair. It wasn't because he lost them at sea. (laughs) He he wore them out. That's the reason. He wore them out. Now, LaSalle, who lived from 1643 to 1687, came to the New World. He traveled the whole of the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico, claimed the entire river valley for France. Then he had his men turn around and head all the way back up the Mississippi to Quebec in Canada. They sailed all the way back home to France for refinancing. Then they sailed back to the New World again. This time, he and his men landed by mistake on the Texas coast instead of the Mississippi Delta. So he and his men walked thousands of miles looking for the Mississippi River. Then they sailed north for Canada. Then they got lost in a storm. They found themselves back in the Gulf of Mexico. And on the third unsuccessful attempt up the Mississippi, his weary men killed him. (laughs) This is a madman. You're killing us. Jeez. There is no Mississippi. We are lost, buddy. I always think of these people. Now, a lot of them were ruthless, right? And you had to be brave to come all this way to this new world looking for fame and fortune. And then you got this guy who's your boss who is literally killing you. Yeah. You can be too much of a tyrant as a boss. That's right. You don't see that on any of the LaSalle statues, do you? (laughs) Killed by his men for being lost too much. This, This has always been the example to me of how far this guy went. There's a little town, we, we're very familiar with Palestine, Illinois, because uh-huh. that was where our uh, brother-in-law Gary Rich lived. And that was supposedly founded by a man who got disconnected from LaSalle's group uh-huh. way deep in Southern Illinois. And he loved the way the area looked. It reminded him of Palestine. So he called it that. It's in the diaries of his uh, descendants. So uh, these people were all over the map, all over North America. And then finally, it's like, that's enough. <laughs> okay. 
All right, Bob. When the first edition of this poet's collection of poems appeared in 1855, the Boston Intelligencer said in its review, quote, the author should be kicked out from all decent society as below the level of brute. He must be some escaped lunatic raving in pitiable delirium, unquote. Really? <laughs> How's that for what year uh, was that? a review, 1855. When it first appeared in print. Yeah. The collection went through nine more editions and gained a large enthusiastic readership in the United States and England. Who is this poet? Wow, that's strange. Yeah, that I love the little bit of hyperbole there. I was <laughs> thinking Edgar Allan Poe because he wrote some strange stuff. Yeah, but poems. no, no. Was this a British poet? No. Was it an American poet? Yeah. yeah. Was it a woman? <laughs> no. No. Uh, I don't know. Who was it? Walt Whitman. No kidding. Yes. See, oh, Walt Whitman's poetry is beautiful, I oh, think. Oh, Captain, my captain. Yeah. And I'm going to end today's show with a beautiful quote from him. But yeah, that just shows you how hyperbole isn't just for today's people. Wow. They didn't <laughs> like him. I thought he was great. I thought it was gorgeous yeah. stuff. Below the level of brute. Wow. Wow. Poor guy. This is a British newspaper said that about him? No, it's Boston. The Bo Boston? Boston Intelligencer. And not so intelligent, if you ask me. <laughs> it hits review. They're pretty harsh. <laughs> Jeez, that's amazing. Yeah, but he, he went on to how many more printings? Uh, nine yeah. more editions. So it didn't hurt his sales. My goodness. <laughs> oh, you know, we had the uh, the months of the year. Remember, we've been doing what oh, are the months yeah. of the year? Yes. And we knew that a lot of the months of the year were named after the Roman calendar, which was two months behind us, right? Uh-huh. Remember, September was actually the seventh month, not the uh -huh. ninth month. October was the eighth month. Yeah. Okay, so now let's talk about November and December. Oh, thank God, it's the end. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how did they get their names? Well, November. Well, that's when you couldn't have a Vember, so there was no... No, November. I get it. That. Boy, that's pretty pathetic. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm reaching, ain't I? <laughs> no. Okay. The Latin word for nine is novum or navum. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So November is nine. It was the ninth month of the original Roman, Roman calendar. calendar. And, and December is the 10th month in the Roman calendar. That's why it's called DEC, D-E-C, yeah. for the 10th month of the Roman calendar. So yeah. there we go. We've gone through all of the calendar names and what they mean. All right. Now, let's take a test. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's enough of that. I thought that was funny, though. So for quite a few months there, we're going by positions you know, in the calendar you, that would go back. You know, they never did rename all those months. No, you know, I never sat down and thought about, but everybody knows, a lot of people know that Ak and Sep and all those are prefixes for, you know, uh, seven, eight, nine, but I never thought, hey, yeah, that's not the right month for that name. Okay. It never occurred to me until you pointed it out. Thank I'm you, so Bob. I'm so glad I could be of yeah, such service so to you. You are so enlightening. Thank you. I married you for a reason. Here's one more. Who Who is it, okay? Okay. This, this reclusive writer was depicted in W.P. Kinsella's 1982 novel, Shoeless Joe. A writer. Yeah. Okay, somebody who wrote, okay. Yeah. When the writer threatened to sue, he was replaced in the film version, which was, you know what it was? No. Field of Dreams. Oh, really? Remember Shoeless Joe? Yeah, Shoeless the, Joe Jackson. Yeah. The writer was replaced by a fictitious writer named Terrace Mann, portrayed by James Earl Jones. Okay, yes. Remember that? So who was the original writer yeah. supposed to be? Yeah, that uh, they referred to that was going to sue. Was it Norman Mailer? Nope. Was it Gore Vidal? No. Was it somebody like that? Uh, I'll repeat, a reclusive writer. Reclusive. Okay, so it's the guy who wrote, uh, he wrote one novel and that was it. No, what? not him. Oh, okay, I don't know. J.D. Salinger. 
That's who I was thinking of. Oh, he wrote more than one. Catcher in the Rye was the most famous, but I read all his things. Oh, he wrote more than one. Oh, yeah. That shows you I thought he was more reclusive than he was. <laughs> yes. Anyway, that's the answer. He was in the field of dreams, but wow, he was cranky about it. All right. <laughs> I think I need a break now. Okay. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. I'm Robert Rickman, host of OK Boomer. Yes, we like to entertain you with colorful features, boomer history, and brain fog, but we also tell you about serious stuff such as... The amount of money taken in from property taxes continues to rise. The actual percentage allocated to senior centers is declining. We search all week for news boomers need to know and make it available to you on OK Boomer. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. OK Boomer! We're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. We do this each week for the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin, and its CPL radio, internet radio station. And after that, it goes on podcast platforms throughout the world. Incidentally, if you are listening to our show, we would love to have people rate and review by going to the podcast platforms. That always helps us get more ah, visibility yeah, on the web. Good point. Da, 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 da. Okay, how did Roman shoemakers calculate shoe sizes? How did they calculate shoe sizes? Yeah. Well, wasn't at one point I know a foot was as long as the emperor or the president or the king's foot. That's yeah. where that came from. Uh-huh. Uh, did that have something to do with it? No, we're talking inches here. How did they calculate inches? Okay, how did they calculate inches? They, they didn't have they didn't have tape measures. They weren't by knuckle sizes. You know the length of time, the length of. Now you'll like this. Okay. Three barley corns equaled one inch. <laughs> no kidding. Yep. So one barley corn was a third of an inch, and they used this to determine and fit people with shoe sizes. In 1324, King Edward of England decreed that indeed three barley corns was one inch. Shoe sizes increased with each barley corn, and the third inch barley corn calculation is still used to determine shoe sizes today. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, they use a tape measure for the third of they an inch. They don't bring out barley corn. No. Just put it out on the table there. <laughs> you said the Romans at first. Yeah. What did, did I say? They started with the barley corns? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it was, uh, who's the King Edward of England? Oh, yeah, so he, you know, they were ruled by Romans once, weren't they? Well, before, long before King Edward. Yeah, so it took them until 1324 to say, yeah, three to, barley corns To make is it an empirical. Inch. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Marsha, I have a question for you. Why do they call happy hour, appy hour in Utah? In Utah? Appy hour. Appy, well, oh, because of appetizers? That's right. Ah, because happy hour Ding. is against the law in Utah. Did you know that? No. It's illegal to sell alcohol at a discounted price. That means happy hour at a hotel bar is out of the picture. So in its place, many establishments offer happy hour. That's very funny. When the appetizers are on sale instead. <laughs> Utah has a famously strict law regarding alcohol in general. So that one's particularly less shocking than some other unusual laws listed there. Here's some other restrictions on Utah drinkers. Only one 1.5-ounce shot of alcohol allowed per drink. So no doubles, unless you're drinking a cocktail, which does allow 2.5 ounces of booze. Oh, for God's sake. As sakes. long as the uh, extra ounce uh, is a less potent spirit. Uh, why, why do you feel the sense of uh, uh, church interference A little here? infringement there. Oh, my There's gosh. also a maximum of 4% alcohol by weight or 5% alcohol by volume there. 
Although there are some higher octane brews of draft beer they in ha- stores. Do they have taverns in? We, we've been oh, yeah. to Utah. They have places to drink. And they close them down at 9 o'clock. Just can't or? drink that much. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Happy hour. I thought that was funny. It is. What a way to get around yeah, happy hour. I love it. Well, we'll call it happy hour then. Okay. <laughs> I have another shout out for our friends, Tim and Karen Nolan, riding the highways and byways. Uh, They're also known as Nolan's on the Road on Instagram? Yes. Okay. All right, Bob. How many bridges connect the overseas highway from mainland Florida to Key West? Oh, I never thought of it called overseas highway. Yeah. Okay, so it goes over the ocean. They're bridges. Ah. How many? How many bridges from the mainland to Key West? Mm. Which is, uh, okay, let me see here. Um, I'd say four very long bridges. <laughs> That's what I would have said in that neighborhood, too. Yeah. Get this, 42. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I have. That's a lot yeah, of Yeah, I've bridges. never been that far down there. No, me either. So We were on something. It was a long, long bridge, as I remember as a kid, but that might have been Louisiana or somewhere like that. Went way out in the middle of something. The poncha train or something. Wow, 42 bridges. No wonder people get scared when they get out in the middle of that sometimes, right? Yeah, I would. All right, Marcia, I have another weird law. Did you know that you're not allowed to play bingo for more than five hours in North Carolina? Well, you know, that's why I don't go there. (laughs) You better pace yourself. (laughs) Yeah, not only is there a statewide five-hour cap on all bingo games, but you can't hold two separate bingo sessions within a 48-hour period. Is there a reason for this? Apparently, North Carolina has a long history of these kinds of rules, conservative rules on gambling. goes back to its colonial days, because back in 1749, the General Assembly was already regulating excessive and immoral gambling practices. It was a problem back then. And they <laughs> invalidated gamblers' debt greater than 100 pounds, and the regulations on games and lotteries only snowballed from there. They even banned lotteries in 1835. So, bingo. It is legal in North Carolina today. Lots of restrictions, though. In addition to the time limits, it's only allowed to be played for fundraising purposes unless the prize is less than $10. Okay. Good to know, Bobby. Good to know. (laughs) It just ruins everything for me. I love bingo. Okay, here's one more for the road. The Great Ocean Road is a scenic drive in what country? The Great Ocean Road? Mm-hmm. A scenic drive in what country? Mm-hmm. Would Let's, it be along the ocean? The Great Ocean where Road. Where is it? It's a scenic drive in which country? Okay, question. Mm-hmm. Is the Great Ocean Road in Europe? No. Is it in Asia? No. Is it in America? No. The Americas? No. Is it in Australia? Maybe. I think it's in <laughs> Australia. Yeah, I thought if I was going to say Australia, but I wanted to narrow it down. So Yes. In 1922, they built it, and the road stretches 151 miles and is considered one of the most spectacular driving routes in the world. It hugs the coastline and meanders through the rainforest and charming little towns. Wow, that sounds interesting. What ocean is it running along, Bob? It is the, um, let's see, it's the South Pacific, but there's a name for that ocean there. It's not called the Pacific. It's called the Indian Ocean. New. What is it? The Southern Ocean. The Southern Ocean. Also known as the Antarctic Ocean. Mm. Okay, Marcia, future civilizations may find a series of mysterious giant concrete arrows stretching across the surface of the United States. What were they for? Who was responsible for them? 
You can find this on the road, too, if you go to the right places. The concrete arrows? Concrete arrows. Well, so this is from which, our century? or uh, No, it's from the last century, oh. the 20th century. Okay. Uh, concrete arrows. Well, are they... It was a U.S. government department. I was going to say, is it like runways? They were. Actually, you're on the right track. These were concrete arrows, part of the first guidance system for airmail pilots. Airmail pilots. They're huge, giant concrete arrows in the ground. You can see that in that picture there. It's in the middle of a desert out there. There's one. Can our readers see that? No, they can't see it. Oh, okay. (laughs) And the United States Department of Commerce laid them down. They go back to 1920 and the nation's first coast-to-coast airmail routes. The airplane had only been invented 17 years earlier, and there were very few aviation charts to guide the airmail pilots on their 3,000-mile journey. So the Department of Commerce and the Bureau of Standards Aeronautical Branch constructed a system, the Transcontinental Airway System, which was a series of light beacons and giant concrete arrows. And the beacons were 25 miles apart. The arrows next to them were painted yellow. The beacons lit the arrows at night, and the arrows were painted yellow to glow in the daylight. So ah. the, many of them are still there. By 1929, they extended from coast to coast. No kidding. Yeah, and were credited with helping airmail pilots travel safely from the Atlantic to the Pacific in 30 hours. It probably gets alien ships a place to land, too. They can follow the arrows. Alien ships? They called them airplanes UFOs, at the time. I was Oh, thinking. that, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Uh, there, some of them are very, very much in remote areas. Like in, there's one in Elko County, Nevada, which even today can only be reached by four-wheel drive. Hmm. But it guided pilots on the San Francisco to Salt Lake route. They decommissioned that uh, system in the 1940s with the rise of radio and radar technology. But guess what? Just like many government things, it wasn't officially decommissioned until the 1970s. Oh, Fifty years later, more than a hundred of the giant concrete arrows still exist today across the United. United and they're States. not used for anything? Not used for anything, just big concrete arrows. Hard to believe the government do something that's not that, used. It's hard to believe the government would do something concrete, too, isn't it? Concrete? I get it. little honey. joke there? Yeah, <laughs> not very little. All right, Bob, historically, there were four named oceans, but since 1999, there are five. Name them. Bum, bum. Okay, uh, let's see. There's the Atlantic. Yes. I got one. Yeah. <laughs> there's the Pacific, there's the Arctic, there's the Indian, and then there is the, oh gosh, what's the other one? There's a fifth one, right, you said? Uh-huh. Is it in Europe by any chance? Bob, think back to the last question. It is the Arctic Ocean, the Southern Ocean. That's it. Okay. The Southern Ocean, also known as Antarctica Ocean. So okay. there's a difference between Antarctica Ocean and Arctic Ocean. In the Arctic, the ocean is surrounded by continents, while Antarctica is continent and surrounded, surrounded by, by oceans. Ocean. Yes. There's a little fact. Wow, how for profound. You. All right, you got something to wrap us up. <laughs> oh, sure. And this is from that scandalous Walt Whitman, okay? Oh, that guy, the one that was lower than a brute? Is that <laughs> what? The... <laughs> yeah, something like that. Wow. He said, keep your face always toward the sunshine and shadows will fall behind you. What is bad about that? What a great saying. (laughs) Yes. I don't know if that was the line they crucified, but uh, that's one of his quotes from one of his favorite pieces. Did you ever have to learn Captain, my Captain? Oh, yes. That was the one he wrote about Lincoln's assassination. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Learned that in grade school, right? Yeah. 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 And that was talking about the captain of the ship is gone. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Leaves of Grass, that was his big book. Yeah. Be- beautiful stuff, yeah. I think. I yeah. think Walt Whitman's wonderful. He's the poet of America. 
All right, that's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show on the road or off the road. And we want to say thanks to Bojo, our friends, Bob and John, and to Karen and Tim Nolan, too, who all contributed at least inspiration to the show today, (laughs) right? That's right, right. inspiration. Okay. (laughs) I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The The Off-Ramp. Well, that's 201. We got past 200, (laughs) Marsh. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.